Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, I'm going to be speaking from Zephaniah and wandering my way through Zephaniah in a way that I hope is new and challenges you uh, as well as encouraging you. Um, Zephaniah is my favorite book in the Bible. How many, how many people here have Zephaniah as a favorite book in the Bible? Anybody? Uh, all the years of doing this, uh, I, I have found two other people. We're, we're a rare breed in the world. Um, and uh, Zephaniah is a, a minor prophet, the end of the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long, and the first two and a half chapters of those three chapters is this long litany of condemnation. Uh, I grew up in Ireland. You kind of have to be melancholy and Irish for that to be the, your favorite book in the Bible. Um, so what I'm going to do is just read you a couple of verses just to set context. I won't actually be unpacking them, but just to give you a sense of this is what most of the book is like. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious, defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing to the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted. With no one passing through, their cities are destroyed. No one is left, no one at all. And on and on it goes. It's a really tough read. But I'm going to get to the end of Zephaniah a little bit later. And you'll see why it's my favorite book. But for now, I want to parallel what I just described to you from Zephaniah uh, in modern terms. I did not realize that there was a modern parallel in terms of a nation in, uh, uh, in our modern world. And that nation is Cambodia, where everything that is described in, in grotesque detail of condemnation, abandonment, and destruction uh, occurred to Cambodia. On April 17, 1975, the Civil War ended, and the world's most radical communists took over that country. They took it over in its entirety. They sealed the borders. They marched into the capital city of 2.5 million people. And within 72 hours, functionally, there was no one in that city. Thousands died in that evacuation. They did not only evacuate the capital city, they evacuated every village, every hamlet, every town in the country. And the entire population were sent out uh, to the killing fields. That's where the term killing fields comes from. And so it is the only time in modern history we have an entire country made into a concentration camp. No one goes in, no one goes out. The only way to survive is to pretend to be illiterate. Anyone with more than a grade three education was slated for execution because they were seen as a risk to the new revolution. So the killing started and they went right through the country. Out of a population of 7.5 million people in uh, three and a half years, they managed to destroy 3.2 of them. 
There is no genocide that comes close to that in terms of percentage anywhere in modern history. And so the psychological dislocation, the torment experienced by these people in this massive concentration camp uh, is unprecedented to our knowledge. Children were systematically separated from their parents and raised on brutality and slave labor. And the mantra of the revolution over and over again was God is dead, God is dead, God is dead. What a hopeless, hopeless environment. While this is all going on, I'm growing up in Northern Ireland. <clears throat> I knew nothing about Cambodia. Didn't know where it was, didn't know that this was happening. I was having enough struggles with my own life. I was a dyslexic kid. Uh, I was the one that was beaten up. It's a violent society in itself. Uh, I grew up with a lot of violence. Um, I was not the bully, I was the bullied. I was the one picked on and beaten up and kicked around. Uh, and so um, what I discovered was that, that really in life, when, when life turns bad, um, we, we have forks in the road, we have decisions to make. And, and so often when you're, uh, when you're pretty beaten up by life, you make a decision to either become bitter and angry and twisted and defensive, or you grow a heart for those who are underdogs and beaten up like yourself. And I am privileged that God took me in the latter direction. To make a very, very long story short, I uh, ended up uh, emigrating to Canada with uh, my mom and dad and sister. Uh, I ended up being in the RCMP and I became a weapons specialist. That's kind of a, 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 a genetic thing. When you grow up in Belfast in Northern Ireland, you kind of automatically become a weapons specialist. It's sort of in the blood. Um, <laughs> And so my, my job, my career in the RCMP, I dealt every day with, uh, my specialties were blunt trauma, stabbings, and shootings. What a delightful world. Uh, every day was, was more bodies, more corpses, more crime scenes. Uh, it was depressing stuff. Uh, but, but also, I was trained as a weapon specialist, so I was trained as a sniper, and a good one. Um, so, so let me just describe to you um, the most useless skills for Christian mission. They're mine. Uh, God does not need snipers. He does not need weapon specialists. I have the most useless skills. How on earth could God use even me? On one occasion, I was so sick of dead people. It was, um, it was uh, about February. It was dark. It was dank. It was damp. It was Vancouver. And I'm just, I, I wake up in the morning and I got another autopsy to go to, another dead person, and I'm just so done with this. And I figured, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get to somewhere hot, somewhere bright, and somewhere full of live people. Uh, so that's Asia. So I, uh, I made plans for a vacation uh, to go to Asia uh, to, to escape all this. Um, but I wasn't, uh, I didn't plan it very well. Things went sideways. Um, so I arrived in, in Asia and quite by accident ended up uh, on the Thai-Cambodian border. <laughs> on the Thai-Cambodian border, getting shelled and shot at, sitting in a hole trying not to get killed. Way to go, travel agent, you know. <laughs> um, but in, in, interestingly, I, I was exposed to violence there like I had never seen before. So it just got worse. And, and the, the fear of those people was just palpable. And so this vacation that went very, very badly wrong was to actually change my life. I was sitting on the Thai-Cambodian border where um, um, there were refugee camps run by the Khmer Rouge, violent places, and the United Nations and the international community were handing over thousands and thousands of tons of medication 
and food and aid, sometimes lethal aid, uh, to the combatants, to the Khmer Rouge. But inside the country, the borders were still sealed. If you were in there, there was, there was no uh, food or medicine. An embargo after the revolution, after the genocide, instead of the UN coming in to help, they sealed the borders again. And they said, all you people in there that are starving, that are traumatized, that are close to death, go ahead and die. No food goes in, no medicine goes in, no diplomatic agreements, no transportation agreements, no trade agreements, nothing. Just isolate them. And so the world forgot about Cambodia. And so while I'm on the border, warehouses full of medication for those that escaped into Thailand, those still inside Cambodia suffered. And a little girl named Ratanak was 11 months old, and she died for want of medication. Medication that my government wouldn't allow into Cambodia because the Canadian government and all the other Western governments voted in the UN to isolate that country. And it infuriated me. For the first time in my life, I encounter the fact that we're on the wrong side of this. We're not the good guys. We're keeping medication from children en masse in this country through this embargo. And so I decided that I was gonna do something fairly politically incorrect. I was gonna get a couple of suitcases of medicine and I was gonna come back and I was gonna smuggle them into Cambodia. Um, <clears throat> now that's not a good idea when you're a member of the RCMP breaching a UN embargo. Uh, supported by the Canadian government. That is, that is not an ideal career move, uh, particularly when it's considered an enemy state of, uh, of Canada, which it was. Um, but God had different plans. I, my plan was to smuggle two suitcases of medicine into this country. Uh, I came back to Vancouver, and I ended up with nine tons of medication. Now I've got to figure out, how do I ship, how do I smuggle nine tons of medication into a war zone? I had no clue what I was doing. And, and in that whole expansion of the program, um, God didn't consult with me at all. He just gave me the meds. Now, now I've got to figure out what to do. And to make a very long story short, we smuggled nine tons in. We broke the embargo. Uh, I went into to, uh, Cambodia. We distributed it to thousands of people. I saved many, many lives in the process. And I was stuck on state-run TV with the communist leaders of the country because I was the guy that had broken the embargo, the hero. Um, and I'm trying to keep a low profile, and they're broadcasting me all over state-run TV. Uh, not a good move, and I was not well-received when I came home. But it was one of those watershed experiences where I had to figure out those oaths of allegiance I've taken to the Queen, to the Canadian government, to the commissioner of the RCMP, were those oaths to trump what Christ was very clearly calling me to do. Because I'm gonna lose my job over this. I could even be imprisoned for this, potentially. So who, who's boss here? And of course, I had the, the plum job. I had a job like CSI on TV. It's like one of those fantastic jobs very few, few people get. And I was gonna walk away from all of that. And I made the decision to do so. So Ratanak became a charity. I named it after that first little girl. I never met her. She died. Wasn't able to help her, but I named it after her. And so we started working in the country. Now that I had some uh, friendships with senior government officials, I was able to go in and out, and we started building clinics. All the doctors had been executed, all the nurses executed, all the public health workers, all the counselors, anybody was gone. They were all killed. Uh, so we started to rebuild from the ground up. We started building clinics. Those clinics became hospitals. And then the AIDS epidemic hit. There was no doctors. And so it became the fastest growing AIDS ep epidemic in Asia. And so when you deal with AIDS, you deal with orphans. When you deal with orphans, you hear stories of abuse. And the abuse was profound. And I discovered that in uh, circumstances of abuse, 
I felt very unqualified. And I discovered that the Western church, the church I'd grown up in, the church I was well taught in, was unqualified. We have figured out a long time ago, right from the get-go, actually, 2,000 years ago, that our first mandate is the gospel. We get that. We know we're supposed to do that. And then in Western culture, about 200, 250 years ago, we started to realize that we also have responsibility to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to shelter the homeless. And there's, there's numerous Christian charities that do that. So that part we've got. But there's a third pillar that is kind of God's character, and that is the pillar of justice. And we're much less qualified to do that because it's ugly. Because if you decide to take on justice for those who are oppressed before the Lord, you will very quickly encounter violence, lies, and abuse. And it's in your face. You have instant enemies. If you build a clinic, I've done it many times, and you go to a community and you cut the ribbon on the clinic and everybody applauds, it doesn't matter what political persuasion you are. Everybody thinks it's good. They pat you on the back. It's easy. And it's very, very self-gratifying. What about justice? What about trying to intervene in situations of injustice? That's going to get ugly. So I, I recognized that massive abuses were taking place because all the police were dead, the family structures were, were destroyed, and pedophiles were flying into Cambodia by the thousand to abuse children because they were unprotected. And so I end up being given investigations. I'm still in the RCMP at this point. I'm being given investigations in terms of um, trying to track Canadians who are going over to assault little prepubescent children, brutal, brutal assaults. And so I'm confronting this violence. I want to engage in it, but who here feels qualified to deal with the Vietnamese mafia, to deal with an industry of hundreds, thousands of children being sold to pedophiles? And if, if you rescue one of those kids, it's no different uh, from taking cocaine from a drug dealer. You're taking his product from organized crime. That's gonna get ugly really quickly. I didn't feel qualified. Anybody here feel qualified for that? It's overwhelming. And so I started to think, why are you asking me to get involved in this, Lord? This is, this is profoundly difficult. I do not have the skills. So many of these young people are bought and sold and abused and now being sold overseas as product because they're all unprotected. Particularly now with um, uh, the Chinese situation where we have uh, gender preference and one-child policy for 70-odd years, there are 35 million females short in, uh, in China. That's a recipe for human trafficking and slavery that is massive. How do we deal with such things? So I went to an old missionary. She had been there for many years. I took her out to a restaurant and I said, you know, Marie, I, I'm, I'm really frustrated. I really want to get involved in these issues of justice. But you know the way when you, when you do the right thing, you feel that pushback from Satan, like you're, you're not making him happy and he's letting you know there's oppression. There's that, there's that sense of, of real hard pushback. I wasn't getting that at all. What I was feeling was that I was laughable. Satan was kind of going, it's called the killing fields, for goodness sake. This is my turf. You're a joke. You're not going to impact this. You're not going to impact child slavery. You're not going to impact the brothel movement. You're not going to impact the Vietnamese mafia. What are you, you're a joke. You're laughable. So I didn't feel oppression. I just felt like an idiot. So I sat, that, uh, sat down with Marie, and I said, this is what I'm feeling. What do, I, what do I do with that? And she leaned across the table. I'll never forget it. And she said, well, the reason, the reason you're feeling laughable, Brian, is, is because you are. And I said, actually, Marie, I came for some encouragement. Um, <laughs> And um, 
And she said, but wait a minute here. You, if you're going to take on issues of justice, this will eat you up and it will spit you out if you try it in your own strength. But no matter how powerful Satan is in the issues of injustice, if you do it in Christ's name, everything changes. Because Satan will not laugh at Christ. He'll laugh at you. Satan never laughs at Christ. Satan flees in the presence of the power of Christ. So by all means, engage in issues of justice. Just be very, very careful whose umbrella you're under, because it better not be your own. So with that, I started to study, and I learned more about God's view of justice. There are hundreds and hundreds of verses. I'm going to give you just a few here. As I started to read scripture with, with new eyes, I started to see justice everywhere. It is threaded through everything. It's unavoidable. So, Isaiah 117, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. You will note in that verse, there is no option. It's a command. Learn to do right, exclamation mark. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead to the cause of the widow. It is a responsibility to us. How about Isaiah 59, 15 and 16? The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intercede. So what is it in those two verses that upset God? Well, <clears throat> Let's read it again. The Lord looked and he was displeased that there was no justice. So God, with his character of purity and justice, is displeased at the lack of justice. But what is it that appalled him? Was it the lack of justice? No, that's actually not what appalled him. What appalled him was the next sentence. He was appalled that there was no one to intercede. That is not a passage written for the unbeliever who doesn't know God. That's a passage written for those who know God. That is a passage written for us. He was appalled that no one would intercede. So the, the pressure just builds as I read. I have responsibility, and whether or not I feel qualified is completely irrelevant to him. As I went on studying in the New Testament, I discovered that there are all kinds of responsibilities we have to widows and orphans. And we have domesticated the role of window, widows and orphans because we have a largely Judeo-Christian uh, foundation to our society. So widows and orphans are those people who we, we guard, we cherish, we protect. But without a Judeo-Christian ethic, without modern thinking in terms of compassion, widows and orphans are much more... Um, uh, linked in the third world to the New Testament than we are. Because in the third world, widows and orphans are not those to be protected. They are those deliberately to be targeted and picked on because they are weak. That's what the New Testament's speaking into. And that's what happens in most of the world. So the responsibility just carries on into the New Testament. And in this whole context, I am constantly confronted by my desire in this process to be Christ-like. And yet... We're told very clearly that Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So we sing our songs, we pray, we want to be like Christ, we express that to him, and yet we need to be very careful. Do we want to be people of sorrows and acquainted with grief? It's a tough call. 
Do we want to be that? And what I have discovered is the greatest riches in my life are to be found in the context of grief. But we need to be open to that. And I think God challenges us, yes, to be Christ-like. So in this whole context, what does God need? Does he need a theological education, medical skills, degree in social work? All of those are useful. If you're going to go and be a brain surgeon in Africa, you better have medical skills. I get it. I'm not, I'm not dissing education. But what is the baseline? What does God actually need for us to impact the world around us, those around us? What does he need for you to be qualified with missions? My position is whether missions are your next door neighbor or missions are on the other side of the world, God actually requires very little. He requires you to be willing. He requires your heart and your hands. So if you are sitting here today and you know the Lord and you are upright and you are breathing, you are qualified. There's no escaping this. So the challenge is there. And in that weakness we feel God enters in. We, we know the little catchphrase, in God's weakness, you know, he will, or in our weakness, uh, God will display his strength. You know, yada, yada, yada. No, wait a minute. Let's actually think about that. That is true. It's when we're outside the box, when we're fearful, when we're thinking, I don't have what this takes, that is precisely when God shows up because we're depending on him. So I agreed to step into the world of human trafficking. Can we bring up the first picture? This is a wonderful picture that uh, is one of my favorites, not because it's pleasant, but because it's powerful. These children, this was later to become one of my crime scenes. This is a picture of uh, children that are enslaved. Uh, there's some kids here, so I'm not gonna describe to you what the kind of slavery is that these girls are exposed to. You can figure that out. It is absolutely profound abuse, and it is on an industrial scale. Thousands of children imprisoned and sold as product. And it's interesting to me, even though they've been raised as product and they have no meaning in this world whatsoever, and what's being done to them is completely normalized, look at the body language. Look at the body language in that picture. And you know, I, I've got to unpack this carefully so you don't misunderstand, but that is shame and I love to see shame. Why do I love to see shame? Because if there's shame, I know there's still enough of a little human being left inside that I can work with. Because even though they are horrendously abused, numerous, numerous times in every 24-hour period, they know when a camera comes in the room, they cower like this because they know they're not supposed to be that way. Even though they've never heard the name of Jesus, they don't know the understanding of freedom, they don't know uh, the fact that they are human the way you and I would understand the rights of being uh, a human, still they know they are made in the image of God in some way that they can't articulate, and that's what it looks like when they look away from the camera. They can't bear to look at a camera. And that excites me because that's the spark that I can fan into flame of a vibrant young life. So in this whole circumstance, my desire is to introduce them to a new father, the father they've never had, the father and the family that loves them, that cares for them, that says to even young children such as this, you are to die for, despised young children of no value whatsoever. I desire to introduce them to the fact that even though they have no citizenship and no papers of their own, that they have citizenship in heaven. I desire to introduce them to a man who himself was a refugee, who himself was abused, who himself was tortured, who says he has no place to lay his head. 
And he says, I go to prepare a home even for these, even for these young ones. And so it is an incredible thing to be able to share Christ with children such as this, and they can relate more than we can because they understand torment. They understand rejection. I have stories to tell that are absolutely amazing in terms of their faith. Little ones this tall being abused every single day. Where is Jesus when, when men do bad things to you? Well, he's in the cubicle with me. He holds my hand through everything. What a stupid question you're asking. They have faith when they understand they are to die for, despite of all their circumstances. And so I learned that God does not, is not limited by my ability to understand his ability to deal with injustice. He can handle these lives. And so in that context, let's read the end of Zephaniah, and you'll very quickly see why this book of destruction and rejection is my favorite book in the Bible. Starting in verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. This is after all the context of abuse and, and rejection and destruction. Be glad and rejoice um, with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. And that's that spark I was talking about. I have seen young women and girls in Cambodia so abused, they, they, they're just done. They don't even fight back. There's just, it's like whatever. They're vegetative at that point. They are so abused, you don't even know where to start. So if I see shame, it's a sense of, oh, I got a human still to work with. There's, there's, a, there's something I can work with. Here it says, and it's a command, do not let your hands hang limp, irrespective of the circumstances that they deal with or irrespective of the circumstances you and I deal with in life. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now, we all think of, of that day in the future. One day we're going to stand before the throne of God. We're all going to be pitch perfect. We're all going to have these beautiful voices. There's going to be millions of us, and we will sing before the throne of God. Isn't that going to be absolutely amazing? And that is not what's being discussed here. Look at the words, and I believe this is the only place in Scripture we have this. He will take delight, great delight in you. He will quiet with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Who's singing? It's not us. God of the universe will sing for us. And what's even more important to me is he will sing for little children that have never known an earthly father that didn't sell them, that didn't trade them off, that have never known how to trust anyone. And they will be given the privilege of climbing up on his lap as he sings for them. That's the God I serve. And you know, in all the torments we have in our own lives, perhaps not that kind of slavery, but all the torments we have, we are children beloved in the same way. After all this is over, <laughs> all the stuff in our minds and hearts now that we struggle with, that we worry about coming into 2020, or all the grievances in the past with our family, ourselves, whatever, all the things we have to deal with, one day we get to crawl up on his lap and we are so precious to him. 
he will sing for us. What an absolutely beautiful picture. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. He is a God of justice. I will rescue the lame. I will gather those that have been scattered, and I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. The most important work we do right now is we return young people who have been sold overseas. We bring them back to Cambodia for rehabilitation. A very typical phone call we get is, hi, my name is Yao Yun. I went to get a nanny's job to try and help my parents because they're poor. The job broker slash mafia uh, put me on a plane. They gave me a passport, put me on a plane. I think I'm in China. Uh, I was introduced, uh, I'm 17. I was introduced to my husband this morning. Uh, I don't find him attractive, and so he has shared me with you know, 23 guys in the village. Uh, can you get me out of here? They don't even know where they are. How do you deal with a phone call like that? It's outside of the box. It's terrifying. We are not skilled. And yet in this, we bring it to the Lord in terror. What do we do with this? We don't have the skills. And God shows up because it's about him, not us, which is true of all the big uh, problems in our lives. It's always about him and not about our own skills. And he's good for it. So at that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. We get to live this. <laughs> I will rescue the lame. I will gather those that have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the Lord we serve. This is a message for them that I would encourage you to pray for, for such children and young people, but this is also a message for us. And one of the biggest hurdles we have to get over is convincing these young people that no matter what's been done to them, they are, they are slaves, they are abused, they have no value whatsoever. They're, they're just completely disposable human beings to convince them that they are to die for. I, I just love that expression. They are to die for. And even as we can relate to that and understand, isn't that a wonderful kind of a movie tagline? Well, wait a minute here. That applies to us. We need to live that way. You, here today, are to die for. Do we live that way? Do we have a sense that we are that precious, that we are that valuable, that God would absolutely go to the lengths of a suicide mission to come to earth as a vulnerable baby, struggle for 30 years, be tortured, abused, and killed for you? That is precisely what he does, and that is precisely what transforms these young lives in Cambodia. When they understand you're, you're kidding me. Somebody actually would die for me. It's transformative. Before all the therapy and the trauma counseling and everything else, a concept that you have value changes everything. To the point where the Canadian government have come to me several times and said, your rehabilitation programs are so successful. You're not getting funding from us. Why not? We want to give you money. I don't apply to them. They come to me wanting to give money, and I say, I'm sorry, I don't want your money. Why don't you want money? Everybody wants federal government money to run these programs. I don't want your money. Well, why don't you want our money? Because, because if, if I take money from you as the Canadian government, I'm going to have to diminish the role of Christ in this, aren't I? Yeah, it would have to be kind of a more secular program. Not happening. Because I work for the great physician. And the great physician heals lives that are unhealable and transforms lives that are absolutely untouchable by the world, that secular psychologists say you can't fix a young woman that's been attacked five, seven, 
thousand times, and she's still alive. Secular psychologists don't have an answer for that. Christ says, you are to die for, and I will transform you. There'll always be scars, but he transforms. Next picture. I'm going to finish with just a couple of pictures to make this biblical theory of God's redemption of us and God's love for us to make it real. So these were the first seven kids I encountered. This is the first case I was assigned by the RCMP. These are stills from a pedophile's video, and I was asked to find these children somewhere in the world. They had no idea where. They said, all we want to know is a country to see if we can track down these kids, uh, these victims. And within 72 hours, I had the GPS location of the uh, crime scenes and I had the names of the children. That's not good investigation technique. That is God stepping into my world when I am overwhelmed and I have no skills and saying, these are my children. I claim them. Do as you're told. It's not about my skills. So we found them. I'll finish with them in a second. Next picture. So we're dealing with a world where young women are completely objectified. The sign she is holding says, sleep with me, free breakfast. It's kind of like a sign you'd see at a gas station. She is objectified. We talk about the Me Too movement. You want to see real abused women, you go to a culture that does not have a Judeo-Christian foundation and ethic. Now you see real abuse of women. We're amateurs when it comes to the objectification of women. It is absolutely profound in terms of how lost and rejected they are as they are sold as product. Next picture. We have the privilege of bringing them home. This little one was sold to Malaysia, horribly abused. We got her back and she's just finishing training there and presenting to me. She's been trained in a really good job of dignity now. Uh, you know when you go on cruises or fancy hotels and they carve the vegetables and the fruit for the buffets and they're really fancy carvings? She's presenting me a bouquet of flowers, the flowers there that are actually carved out of a, a watermelon. Uh, she has a job of dignity and of hope. And within six weeks of being in our center, she said, I realized for the first time that I am to be loved. I have never experienced love. But what was even more insightful after only six weeks um, is that she said, I realize it's not your love, it's God's love through you that God loves me. And a couple of weeks after that, she was baptized after slavery. This is transformative stuff. So there is hope even in the world of, of human trafficking, brutal human trafficking. Next picture. So with job skills training, we obviously have extensive trauma counseling. I don't have time to get into that now, but it is earth-shattering, some of the stuff they deal with in, uh, in the counseling. We go through that at length with them. Next picture. And we end up with young women of dignity, with skills, with hope. Some of them being some of the top university grads in, uh, in Cambodia. Uh, now actually serving the Lord in a variety of different organizations that they are part of the solution now. It is really, really exciting. Next picture. So when they initially get out, there is no hope for them. There's no social services. There's no, uh, they can't even be honest with their family with what's happened to them or they'll be rejected. Um, and so they're completely isolated. And this is a package that none of us knew how to deal with, but we chose to love them anyway. And over time, encountering Christ, they are transformed because if you encounter a young person or a child in the gutter who is worth nothing and you walk up to them and say, look what I found. I found a document, you in the slums, in the gutter, and that document has got your name on it and it says you, it's a birth certificate and you are a child of the king. What does that document do for that young person? It completely transforms their lives. If they discover they are a child of the king, if that's the birth certificate they have that they own spiritually, then they go from being worthless to being priceless 
instantly. That, that young girl becomes from a slum, she becomes a princess because she belongs to the king. He died for her. That is the psychological process we bring them through. You are to die for, you're a child of the king, you're a princess. And so we end up, next picture, with wonderful young women of dignity and of hope that cherish the Lord, that care for those around them, that can express compassion after all the trauma. It's amazing. But most interestingly, they have self-esteem after thousands of assaults. It's, it's absolutely incredible what God can do. But as I said, we work for the great physician. So there's a lesson here for us too. No matter what you have struggled with, no matter what you have suffered, Christ can deal with it, but we've got to give it to him. And he says, you are to die for. So don't allow me to be your teacher this morning in terms of your value before God. Allow these young women to be your teacher because they've been through it and they've been the bottom of the bottom of the world's societies. And now they are young women of dignity that know and love the Lord. Next picture. So to make it personal, here's the first seven. They were not statistics for me. I was completely broken. I had done many years of homicides. Nothing prepared me for the kind of videos I was watching of these kids. Absolutely heartbreaking. I wanted to run from this, but God called me into it, and it has become the richest part of my life. Next picture. Some of those kids now are young women, married, they own property, they own businesses, they are moms. They have got husbands that love them. They love the Lord. They are moving forward. And best of all for me, they call me dad. The highest honor I have in my life is to be called dad by these young women that would have been dead. That the world would say are unrecoverable, that are completely throwaway, and Christ says different. And that is precisely what he says about your life. That he will gather you, he will bring you home. You have a future with him, and the future is good indeed. Because you are a child of the king. So our job with those around us, it doesn't mean necessarily charging off to Cambodia. Our job is to minister to those around us, to be his ambassador in love. So for us, it means working with particularly tough cases under the noses of the mafia with abused young women and now young men as well. For you, that might just mean your colleague at work, not the easy one, not the one you like, the one that drives you nuts, the neighbor you can't stand, the family member that is the worst person you want showing up for Christmas dinner, but they're coming. And God says, I want you to work with them because they, like you, are to die for. We need to start seeing those around us that way. But we also need to see ourselves that way. And it transforms everything. So I would encourage you to engage in the process, be it missions or be it in your own personal life, to engage in the process of gathering and bringing home. Because that is God's heart. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of redemption and you can redeem the unredeemable. We thank you, Lord, that you can take little shells of human beings absolutely shattered in Asia, sold as worthless product, and transform them into people of dignity and hope, and yes, even joy. 
And Lord, while it's difficult for us, we acknowledge that we too are in the same category. No matter what or who we struggle with, we are yours and we are to die for. And that's hard to even think about because we know our hearts, we know our minds, we know our failures. But you absolutely proclaim that we are to die for. Lord, encourage us to live that way. Encourage us to see our own value, to rejoice in that value, and to share it with those around us, even the difficult ones. Bless us in that process, I pray. In Jesus' name.